This is Macro Horizons, episode 114, Green Shoots and April Showers, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 5th. As spring gets underway and allergy season kicks off in earnest, we are truly looking forward to the wary glances and quickly offered defense of It's Just Allergies. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market's highlight was the better-than-expected non-farm payrolls print, which, when combined with the revisions from the prior two months, brought payrolls growth to over a million jobs, an impressive measure by any means. We also saw an as-expected decrease in the unemployment rate to 6%, which was accompanied by a modest one-tenth of a percent increase in the labor market participation rate. Overall, very good numbers, particularly given that the bulk of the growth was centered in the service-providing sector. In the run-up before jobs, it was actually when we saw the most notable price action, however. We saw 10-year yields reach as high as 177. Now, that was before we saw the April 1st bid, which retraced the market and brought 10s back closer to 167. Now, 10 paces point range in this environment isn't anything dramatic had it not been a reversal off of the high yield mark of the pandemic. Now, complicating matters even further was the fact that the sell-off occurred on the 31st of March, i.e. quarter end, also Japanese fiscal year end. The Japanese fiscal new year opened with a bid, and while it's too early to truly expect to see flows from the region materialize, the price action did have the feel of a market attempting to get in front in what is expected to be a significant shift in investor behavior from one of the regions that has traditionally been a big sponsor of treasuries. This has all occurred in the context of record high equity prices yet again, and as we look forward, the amount of fiscal stimulus that's in the system should continue to keep expectations high at least through the April and May data series, and it won't be until we get into the summer months where more material questions will arise about the sustainability of the pace of growth that the U.S. economy appears poised to demonstrate through the first half. Other data highlights of the week just passed included a better-than-expected consumer confidence print, as well as the highest ISM manufacturing read since 1983. This is very consistent with the continued performance in equities and risk assets, as well as the strength in the manufacturing and goods-producing sector. Within the details of ISM, we did see a pretty significant increase in prices paid, and this triggers the obvious question of how long before the higher input costs on the manufacturing side are ultimately realized in core inflation. On one level, it follows intuitively that goods producers are going to attempt to pass through 
the increase in costs to the end user. The underlying question is, how willing will the consumer be to pay up for goods and therefore contribute to the overall pricing pressures in the economy? There's no uncertainty that this will be an issue that's closely followed over the course of the next several months, and we'll be keeping an eye on the April 13th core CPI print for the month of March as the next potential inflection point for rates. Well, it was an unquestionably strong NFP print. We've got over a million jobs added in February and March. But to me, really, the question is, how much of that was already reflected in pricing? And I think that given the price action that followed the non-farm payrolls print, we can safely say that a fair amount of it was already built in. Immediately after the release, we saw the treasury market sell off one, maybe two basis points. Now, it was a low liquidity event because of the recommended early close at noon, as well as the fact that overseas markets were largely closed, which really left the market to absorb and trade the information in a effectively 30 to 45 minutes before the established trend took hold, and we've seen rates drift slightly higher from there. My biggest takeaway from the entire process was that the market is eager to look beyond what we are seeing in terms of the reopening data and start to consider what the new normal will ultimately comprise. We've been on about this idea that We've spent as a market a fair amount of time projecting how long it will take to get to the new normal, but remarkably little time in contemplating exactly what the new normal will look like and how some of the newly established patterns of consumption during the pandemic might ultimately prove more permanent. And within the details of NFP, we did see one of the hardest hit sectors, which is leisure and hospitality, put in another solid month of gains. But using this as sort of an example for what you're getting at, Ian, there's still 3.1 million fewer jobs in that sector of the economy than where we were before the pandemic. While there's undoubtedly been an impressive pickup in hiring, not just in that sector, but in the economy as a whole, as we move further from the darkest days of the pandemic, each incremental job gain is only going to get more difficult. That gets to exactly your point about how long it will ultimately take for firms to adapt to this new normal and business after COVID-19 to take shape, which then will allow hiring decisions to be made. But that's going to be a much longer process than just the next several months. That will take quarters, if not years. And that sets us up for the next big question in the market, and that is how long can elevated inflation expectations persist without confirmation from the realized data? On April 13th, we see the March CPI print, and expectations are for an impressive year-over-year figure, if nothing else, because of the base effects, but also that the stimulus that's currently running through the system and the fact that the economy appears to be reopening will lead to service sector inflation. That's one of the biggest unknowns, and as the second quarter comes into focus, clearly this could serve as an inflection point for the overall direction of rates. We did see 10-year yields reach as high as 177 Now, that occurred at a point when the long bond was well off of its recent highs of 251. There's a meaningful dynamic at play between the belly of the curve and the 30-year sector. Specifically, 530s is flattening. Now, the reason it's flattening has to do with where the market believes we ultimately are in the rate cycle. As the economy improves, liftoff expectations have been brought forward and 
that has weighed on the 5, 7, and 10-year sector disproportionately, while the assumption is that the sooner the Fed starts to back away from an uber-accommodative monetary policy, the more of a headwind that will ultimately provide for longer-term growth. Said differently, we've seen a lot of stimulus put into the system throughout the pandemic, but very few people anticipate that will ultimately change growth potential in the U.S. So if growth potential is what it was prior to the pandemic, and it will take us still a while to get back to those levels, then it follows intuitively that we should see the longer end of the curve contained. And thinking about normalization expectations, it's also worth mentioning that in our pre-NFP survey this month, consensus seems to be centered around an early, not late, 2023 timeline for the Fed to get rates off the effective lower bound. That roughly lines up with what we're seeing in the euro dollars market, but it does come in stark contrast to the Fed's own projections, which we saw confirmed at the March FOMC and showed policy rates at zero through the end of 2023. Clearly, the dot plot will be revised as more information becomes available on the pace of the recovery, but it seems that at this point, sometime in 2023, maybe when the FOMC is ultimately able to get rates off zero. On the topic of bringing forward expectations, one of the concerns that I continue to have as we see these impressive jobs numbers is what if the accelerated progress on the vaccination front is bringing forward the reopening in a way that is leading investors to assume this trajectory is going to remain in place throughout the balance of the year, when in effect, we might find ourselves by the end of the second quarter as the summer approaches, with the bulk of the sideline service sector employees back into the market, and investors will be left to look for the next growth impetus. So effectively, what you're saying is a steeper and faster climb in terms of hiring that ultimately leaves us at a slightly lower outright level than could be assumed if these gains were extrapolated over the entire year. Exactly. And further to the point, that also implies a fair amount of the inflation will be condensed into the first half of the year. If we look at the March average hourly earnings data, we saw an unexpected decline of one-tenth of a percent month over month versus the consensus for an increase of one-tenth of a percent. Now, this can be easily attributed to compositional issues, and I'm content to do that for now. But once we have another two or three million workers brought back into the labor force, it will be telling to see how wage growth develops. And on this topic of what might be a market that's left looking for the next impetus of growth, I think we'd be remiss not to discuss President Biden's infrastructure plan that we learned about in more detail this past week. Now, for the time being, the longer term growth positive impact of the bill seems to be overshadowing the potential for a corporate tax hike. But this push and pull as the bill is debated in Washington and maybe ultimately makes it onto the floor of Congress will be a major theme over the next several months. Fair to say? I think that's an apt characterization. However, I would offer the caveat that a major infrastructure initiative has a decidedly different character than direct stimulus. Direct stimulus contributes almost immediately to real GDP via consumption, whereas these longer-term infrastructure rebuild projects not only trickle into the economy over an extended period of time, I think that the current proposal is an eight-year program, but in doing so leads to a relatively muted response in the treasury market. 
And on the issue of corporates and corporate taxes, we also reached a milestone in the domestic equity market this week. The S&P 500 crossed 4,000 for the first time ever, and we're once again at record highs. Now, we've been talking a lot about the ability of the economic data to keep up with lofty expectations and what that means for the treasury market, but we also are quickly approaching Q1 earnings season, which offers something of a similar dynamic on the corporate side. So almost regardless of the sector in the equity market, it's going to be especially telling to see the degree to which the reopenings and restriction rollbacks we've seen in the first quarter have been able to reinforce some of the realized equity gains we've seen via realized strong earnings prints. Well, that certainly does bode well for a Fed that appears content to remain on hold and to a large extent has been ignoring or content with some of the recent increases in rates, both on the nominal and real side. Ongoing equity gains have suppressed equity vol and have contributed to ever-easing financial conditions. This leaves the Fed lacking any urgency in terms of a wham extension or a version of an operation twist of some type, while at the same time, it does keep the prospects for tapering QE on the table at the end of this year, and that implies that the setup for that will occur during the second half, presumably the third quarter. This obviously brings up the concern of how much of that is already priced in, and does the Fed risk a taper tantrum once it becomes abundantly clear that Powell will follow through with scaling back QE? And the March meeting was almost certainly too early to begin that discussion, but on Wednesday, we do get the minutes of the March meeting, and any discussion about how willing policymakers are to step back from some of this accommodation will definitely be a point of focus. Remember, while the median Fed funds forecast at the end of 2023 stayed at zero, we did see a greater number of committee members lift their projections off the zero bound. So there's clearly building optimism in the central bank that the recovery will progress to such a degree to allow normal normalization to more materially enter the discussion. Given the Fed speak we've heard both leading into and now coming out of the March meeting, it still seems that the party line is bond buying in its current form remains appropriate, but to avoid another taper tantrum if nothing else, it's reasonable to assume that the committee is going to want to lay the groundwork for tapering well in advance of its execution to avoid any undue market tightening, which in turn could translate to an erosion of financial conditions. So on a wonkier note, there does seem to be some Fed action in the very front end of the curve at a time when we've seen one-month bill yields drop below zero. That's pretty notable. And in addition to negative bill yields, we've also seen a significant pickup in the usage of the Fed's reverse repo facility. Remember, at the March meeting, the Fed did decide to up the counterparty limits from $30 billion to $80 billion for the usage of that facility. And given the enormous amount of cash that continues to flow through to the front end as a function of not only an environment with bill paydowns, but also a declining TGA. So thus far, it seems the committee has been willing to leave any technical adjustment to IOER as a future problem and instead have preferred to lean on the RRP facility. But it's certainly reasonable to expect that we see an increased usage of this sort of pressure release valve in the front end, given that repo rates are likely to remain under pressure. And for those investors who are able to, it's better to put overnight cash at zero at the Fed than take a negative market-based overnight rate. So the takeaway here is that zero is better than negative. Wait, I I thought you wanted to test negative. Oh, pandemic humor. Still too soon. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will receive a few fundamental data inputs, including ISM services, 
which, while not particularly useful insofar as projecting non-farm payrolls, which is typically a key input, it will be telling to see how March is shaping up from the perspective of the service sector, which is key at this point in the recovery. We also hear from a variety of Fed speakers, including Powell, Bullard, Kaplan, and Evans. More importantly, are the March FOMC minutes. Now, we know that there was very little in terms of a shift in monetary policy that occurred at the March meeting. The statement was relatively unchanged, and we did see an update of the SEP and the dot plot. What will be interesting is the discussion around the run-up in rates and any sense that the Fed might be close to responding to what is effectively the market tightening while the Fed is attempting to maintain an extremely accommodative monetary policy stance. In terms of levels to watch in the market, 10-year yields at 177 appear, at least for the time being, to represent the upper bound in terms of what one might expect in the event of a sell-off. On the flip side, a push towards 150 over the course of the month of April certainly isn't off the table, especially if we find ourselves in a situation where the core CPI numbers don't perform as well as the market is anticipating. Now, we do know that the year-over-year print is going to be impacted by the base effects, and that's something that Powell, as well as a variety of Fed speakers, have reinforced as a risk that will offer some distortion as to how the market is perceiving the true inflationary environment. The Fed has also actively coached financial markets to focus on the three-month annualized rate of inflation, and the February print for core CPI in those terms was an uninspired seven-tenths of a percent increase. So given that backdrop, we're open to yet another disappointment on the inflation front, with the caveat that, as we have already seen, there can remain a significant divergence between inflation expectations and the data itself. There will at some point need to be a convergence between the two. However, it's not going to be the month of April, and we wouldn't be surprised if this divergence persists well into the second half of 2021. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we press submit for our NFT auction bid, we cannot help but remember old man Lingen's sage advice about accepting wooden nickels, also non-fungible in their own right, kind of like snowflakes, and just as valuable. Banana? Check. Duct tape? Check. Blank wall? Check. Deep, deep confusion regarding the nature of value? Check. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.